Hello my dudes, my name is Tiffany, welcome back to my series, Internet Analysis, where I like to research and discuss things relevant to social issues and media. Sorry it's been a while since my last upload, I... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm in my final semester of my bachelor's degree and it's been a little bit busy and hectic. But I actually have been posting more frequently on my podcast and my second channels because they're a little bit less time intensive. So if you want to check out those posts, please do. But today we are going to be discussing the documentary The Social Dilemma. I've actually watched this twice now. One was a required viewing for one of my media classes, and then I watched it again to prepare for this video. Essentially, it is warning about the dangers of social media, and we have a lot of former Silicon Valley tech bros telling us that the beautiful creations they made have turned into monsters that are out of control. Is it too late to fix all the problems that have arisen out of, you know, technology and social media? Can't say I can guarantee the answer to that question in this video, but I just wanted to sit and chat about all these things. As I said, I'm a media studies major, and obviously my job is social media, so a lot of this is very personal and close to home to me, and I'm sure to all of you. Essentially, a lot of the interviewees and the people that are focused on the most in this documentary are the tech bros who are saying that they're sorry, they were naive. They thought social media would only be used for good. They had no idea what could come out of it, and now they are changing their tune a little bit. They've turned on the tech giants that they used to work for. Now they're trying to figure out how we can stop the bad parts of social media and technology and if we can create more ethical, humane technologies. The Social Dilemma is actually not just a documentary, it's technically a docudrama because there's this whole dramatization involving a fictional family that the film uses to show a lot of different examples, especially in how social media affects individuals, specifically kids and teenagers. And I actually did enjoy this. During my first watch, I thought it was kind of an interesting device. At some points in the film, it got a little bit annoying, but we'll get into it. So we have a family, a mom, a dad, we have three children. The oldest daughter is very anti-technology. She's very critical of social media. We often see her reading books like The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. And, you know, she's the one who's warning everyone, her brother, her mom even about using social media too much or not being critical of what we absorb through social media. There's also a younger sister who has grown up with social media. She uses it to communicate with her friends. We'll talk about that in a bit. But most of the film focuses on the middle son. He is 
a teenage boy, and we see this trio of AI figures who are all played by the same actor, and they're made to represent advertising, engagement, and growth. They're in Facebook, essentially. A lot of this segment kind of talks about notifications and alerts and how successful they are in pulling us back to our phones even when we step away for just a minute. That's how we get dragged back into social media and continue our scrolling. So these are some of the topics that I'm discussing in this video. There's a lot, a lot of different stuff going on, so make sure you check the timestamps in the description or the pinned comment if you wanna see what I'm talking about when. Before we continue, let's give a shout out to today's sponsor, Bright Cellars. I love wine, I like trying new wines, but I'm not very educated on it. Like I generally know I prefer white wines, but sometimes I end up just picking based off of which packaging is cute. I don't know how to describe what I like about a wine or what exactly I should be looking for, so I would love to learn. I actually discovered Bright Cellars for the first time by Googling what kind of wine suits my taste quiz. As you all know, I love quizzes. I found their quick seven question quiz, which gathers your taste preferences, your palate, and delivers personalized recommendations that you are guaranteed to like. Wonderful, thank you. And if you happen to not love a bottle in your shipment, they will send you a replacement with your next box and you can skip or cancel your subscription at any time, so no worries. Also, of course, gotta love the convenience of delivery. You get the wine sent directly to you. So I'm gonna show you my box. I actually already opened it. As you can see, I've finished a few bottles because I was so excited to try them. So you'll get a lovely big box like this. These are the three I have not tried yet. Your intro box comes with some general wine tips, which are great if you're a beginner. So let's go through my first shipment. I had a 2019 Pinot Blanc, a 2016 White Blend, a 2018 Rosé, a 2019 Chardonnay, a 2019 Vino Tinto, which has already been recycled, but it was the first one my boyfriend and I tried because he loves reds, and this 2016 Chardonnay, which I think was my favorite so far. I love these wine education cards that come for each bottle in your shipment. They'll show you tasting notes, suggested pairings, your best serving temperature, and origin. So I not only get to try out great new wines that are suited to my taste, but I also get to learn what I like and why. Bright Cellars is giving my viewers 50% off your first six bottle box. So click the link in the description to take your quiz and get started. So the first major section I wanna include talks about psychology, wellness, and addiction. This is probably the least surprising section for most people. A lot of the information in this film is very common knowledge or things that aren't extremely surprising to most of us. Like the fact that social media and our phones are very addictive should not be news to anyone. A lot of the Silicon Valley interviewees talk about like, oh, I created the like button on Facebook. I helped to create Pinterest and this other, you know, addictive tool. And so they talk about the persuasive technology that is created and designed to modify our behaviors, to encourage certain behaviors, and of course, to be very, very addicting. They want us to stay on the platforms. They want us to continue using these tools. I have very often had mini breakdowns about how much time I spend on screens. I actually made a video about it a few months ago, but I know I have a problem. I know I am very addicted to my phone and certain apps and my computers, and it definitely doesn't help that my work is all online and now all of my school work is also online. 
I know most of us are in that boat right now. And sometimes we're tempted, like, should we just break our phones? Should we throw our phones away? Should we move to the woods? Should we just never touch social media again? I always have these ideas like, oh, maybe I should use an iPod or something else so that I don't have my phone in my hand because I know if it's there, suddenly I'm watching two hours of YouTube and then a podcast and I can't stop. I've wondered, should I do a digital detox? What does that entail? What happens afterward? I'm actually in the middle of reading a book that I've mentioned in many videos because it's taken me a long time to try to read it. It's called How to Do Nothing. It is about the attention economy and this whole idea of all of us feeling pulled back and forth between technology and trying to get away from it and trying to get control of our own attention. It's a great book, definitely recommend you read it. But the author, Jenny O'Dell, basically, she doesn't endorse these detoxes because she thinks it's more of a temporary escape and it doesn't really address the root causes to our problems. It's just uh, something we can do to make ourselves feel better before we go back to using our phones obsessively. Another thing that really struck me personally was this section about social approval. So one of the main guys, Tristan Harris, I think that's how you pronounce it, said something like, were we evolved to be aware of what 10,000 people think about us or to have constant social approval or judgment? And obviously, as a YouTuber, this stresses me out all the time. I paradoxically crave engagement. I want you to like my videos. I want you to comment. I want you to let me know what you think down below. Please do. But I also am so terrified of negative feedback and criticism, even though I think that that's very important. It's just like on a personal level as an individual, not necessarily a YouTube creator. It's hard. It's hard for us to handle that amount of feedback. And I think even, even that much positive attention is not healthy. But I'm sure, again, many of you can relate to that. Just like, it's social media. So the point is to get feedback and get interactions from people. And sometimes we want that. We want people to let us know, you know, what do you think of my hair? What do you think of my outfit or my makeup? But sometimes we get unwanted feedback. And then we're like, no, wait, please stop. I don't want to hear anything else about what you think about me. So yeah, that's a lot. Still working on that. And another part of this section, they specifically talked about how social media has affected kids and teens. Young people today, Gen Z, they have fully grown up with social media. They are so used to digital communication being a major part of their lives. And I'm on the very youngest end of millennials, so I can relate to some Gen Z issues, but not all. Even the difference of like five years between me and someone born in 2000, which is my younger brother, huge difference in how you relate to social media and how it affects your self-image or your relationships. One of the interviewees, his name is Jonathan Haidt, I think, was talking about how depression and anxiety has grown since the internet and social media have grown. The rates have increased, uh, especially since 2010 and 2011, they've gone way up. So I don't wanna just gloss over this section because it's obviously very, very important. I think this is a really big problem that we as a society need to address, but like how? Like I think in the future, would I let my kids have social media from a young age? No, but how do you keep your kids away from it? And even if they're not on social media, there's still so much social pressure to be online and then you're missing out or people can still be talking about you online and you don't even get to be on there to see it or defend yourself. So there's that, there's the element of bullying, there's the elements of our self-confidence in our physical appearance because so many of these platforms are about 
being pretty and being attractive and getting likes on your pictures. And that is really harmful, especially when you're, you know, in middle school, when you're trying to form your own self-perception and you're feeling really self-conscious because you're changing in a lot of ways and it's awkward. It's a terrible time to be under the microscope of social media. But again, do I have a solution for this? Not necessarily. I don't have any solutions to any of these problems. Spoiler alert. Just want to talk about it. By the way, I made this video last year about low-tech schools, like the Waldorf schools, and kind of the idea of um, limiting screen time being a privilege to a lot of kids. So yeah, if you want to watch more about kids and tech and how that impacts young people, watch this video. Thanks! Let's continue to data collection and personal privacy. Again, this is not something that's necessarily super surprising to anyone. Did you know that the websites and apps that we use collect our data all the time and store it forever? I took a class this summer on digital privacy and it was very interesting because I had that same very vague understanding that everyone online does, but that class taught me a lot of specific information that has stuck with me. In the beginning of the class, we talked a lot about like, do you really care if websites or whatever apps are collecting information about you? Like, oh, I don't really mind that they know, you know, what ads I've clicked on or that I like this brand of clothing or that this person is important to me or this is my age demographic. Like, we feel like these are all tiny, inconsequential bits of data and we don't really mind that they know about us or that they could sell or use this information in different ways. But we should care. <laughs> we definitely should. But then, if we care, what do we do about it? What do we as individuals do? Do we have any power to change or control this? Anyway, one thing I wanted to talk about from that class is the concept of digital dossiers. So essentially this is like the entire folder of every piece of data that any company or government agency or your personal profiles have all in one. Just imagine, yeah, literally every piece of data about you ever in one little convenient dossier. I think many of us realize that the companies we use and interact with directly have our information. Like, you know, I agreed to the terms of service, take my data, sure, I wanna use the thing. But I think a lot of us are less aware of the companies that have our data that we've never heard of. We would never recognize their name and that's because data is traded, bought, and sold. And they're not required to inform you as a consumer, of course, because what? It's not like you own your data or something. There was this article by Kashmir Hill. I got access to my secret consumer score where I learned about this idea of a consumer score. So we're very familiar with like credit scores in the US, but these secret consumer scores are again, unknown to us, but companies use them to judge our trustworthiness by compiling our spending habits, merchandise returns, and other shopping history. Things like Airbnb messages, plus your food delivery orders, like all of these things that you probably wouldn't assume are all together, all contribute to your score, which again, you as a consumer have no right necessarily to know that the score exists, nor to know what your score is and how that factors into your purchases or the companies that you use or things that you apply for. Next, I wanna to touch on facial recognition technology, which is not really mentioned in the documentary, but I think it's important. This is again, something that came from my digital privacy course, but I read this piece, Automated Anti-Blackness, Facial Recognition in Brooklyn by Mutale Ankande. She wrote that, 
The facial recognition systems were accurate 99% of the time when identifying light-skinned men, but the darker the skin of the person, the less accurate the facial recognition systems were, and also that gender was misidentified in 35% of photos of darker-skinned females. Because the AI teams at major tech companies that are creating this technology are majority white and majority male. And we know that algorithms and systems are born from the opinions of the people who write the code. There is so much to say about the dangers of facial recognition technology and a lot of other AI technologies because they do disproportionately affect people of color, black indigenous people of color, and also they tend to be rather sexist. So in that paper with facial recognition misidentifying people with darker skin and especially darker skinned women, that has a lot of implications, especially when facial recognition technology and information is shared with law enforcement, which we've already seen happening. These technologies are created to be beneficial, they're created to protect us or help us in some ways or be convenient, but they end up being used against the most marginalized people. They end up being used to police and enforce and to micro-target people who are already being harmed. I also read a little bit from Sophia Noble's book, which is basically about the racist and sexist ideologies that have been built into the architecture of the internet. Again, when algorithms are present in everything, AI is everywhere, these discriminatory algorithms can cause a lot of harm in almost every part of our lives, especially again, more so for black indigenous people of color or poor people. I'm just remembering everything from that class that sent me spiraling. A very enlightening class, but also very overwhelming. Next, I wanna to touch on techno chauvinism. This is basically the assumption that the most advanced tech solution is inherently the best one. Basically, any problem can be solved with more advanced technology. Bad technology is not a problem if we can create better good technology to fix it. So a lot of the social dilemma does talk about, you know, these tech bros, Silicon Valley interviewees, who believe that ethical technology can fix a lot of the problems that we've been having. But also I wanna to touch on the fact that though a lot of these tech guys talk about how Silicon Valley and tech industries are too white and too male, the film predominantly features the interviewees that are mostly white and mostly male. There are people of color, there are female interviewees, but when you're looking at the actual screen time, again, it's mostly the most prominent white men. And I just find that wonderfully ironic. Instead of talking with a lot of critical researchers or experts in these fields, we talk to these former tech workers who yes, were good at their jobs, good at whatever their purpose was, but does that mean they're necessarily suited to be the people to solve these problems? No. And again, as I just mentioned, with oppressive technologies, the people who are harmed the most tend to be women and black indigenous people of color who are the people that we do not hear from enough in this documentary. They should be the ones being featured more and more because again, they're most likely to be harmed by all of this. What a concept. Even our fictional protagonist in the drama portion of the film is a young white man. I found this like list of segments that the documentary covers. I think it's actually from the Center for Humane Technology, but it lists a lot of the things that are covered in this documentary 
And strangely, systemic oppression is on the list, but didn't make the cut for the documentary. Seems kind of like a very important and very relevant thing to talk about. But also, The Social Dilemma does cover such a wide variety of topics related to tech and social media, that's such a giant umbrella, that we can't, of course, dive deep into all of the issues that are worth diving into, but it's just a shame that systemic oppression, specifically, did not get highlighted enough in this film. Next, let's talk about capitalism, ads, and profit in tech. So throughout this film, they're talking about the problem. They mainly are referring to like one mysterious issue that caused technology and social media to turn evil, and that is surveillance capitalism. We do hear a little bit from Shoshana Zuboff, who has written the book on surveillance capitalism, which I would like to read haven't had a chance to yet, but essentially, very obvious statement, but all the companies care about is profit. They have no sense of social responsibility. And as they mentioned in the film, and as people have repeated a lot in the last few years, advertisers pay for us, the people, the eyeballs. They pay for our attention, for our data. If you're using a free service, the product is actually you, the user. And I know, I know, I know. Somebody really smart is gonna comment, oh, the irony of watching this on YouTube, a, a video that has ads on it, if this video is not demonetized. The irony of you talking about how bad capitalism is, but you put a sponsorship in this video. Yes, alas, I live in a capitalist society and I too must pay my bills and participate in the capitalist system that I am very critical of. I get it, I see the irony. I don't really know what else to say about this point. <laughs> <laughs> Again, we like using these platforms. I like YouTube, I like Twitter. I know that they're collecting lots of data on me and everyone else, but I wanna use the thing, so that trade-off seems fine, right? Next section is on misinformation, conspiracy theories, and fake news, and also how this plays into politics and elections. So if you know about the Cambridge Analytica situation, in short, Cambridge Analytica is a political data analysis firm that worked on the 2016 Trump campaign. They said they had enough data points on every American to build extensive personality profiles to leverage for psychographic targeting of ads. So the Trump campaign relied heavily on that ad targeting using this possibly illegally collected data and they knew exactly, specifically, what individuals to target with certain messages to try to get them to change their behavior in a way, be it encouraging them not to vote or encouraging them to vote a specific way. The big threat is that our democracy is at stake. Any election anywhere in the world can be meddled with now online. I don't wanna to get too far into that because I'm not very knowledgeable about it, but it's a big threat and we're about to have our election, so I hope things go well. But also misinformation on Facebook is not the only threat that we are facing. There are so many other issues, voter suppression, all of the tactics in our democracy by our politicians that work to discourage people from voting or to confuse people. There's a lot. Now, finally, one of my favorite sections, actually, I wanna talk about in the dramatization of this docudrama. Does that make sense? There's a whole portion about the young man being encouraged to fall down the rabbit hole of the extreme center. So obviously in the film, the extreme center is used as a clever ironic device of political radicalization, and it's supposed to be part of this polarization issue, but ironically, extreme center is the antithesis of polarization, you could say. So the kid is, you know, watching YouTube and the guy's saying, oh, you can't trust 
the Democrats or the Republicans. You can't trust anyone. You can't trust the government. You can't trust facts. This kind of conspiratorial, distrusting sentiment that we hear a lot from a lot of different people. This general lack of a shared truth, that is an issue. The, the rabbit holes that people fall down on this very website that drive them to radicalization. But one thing I noticed was that in the visuals of this Extreme Center content, I often saw the Black Lives Matter fist image used saying, don't vote. And I just found it interesting that a Black Lives Matter iconic piece of imagery is being used in this fictional Extreme Center segment. And also the idea of tying Black Lives Matter protests to the idea of not voting when many, 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 probably the majority of people participating in those protests, though we are very disillusioned by electoral politics, are still going to vote and encouraging other people to vote. That just pissed me off. <laughs> It's like, oh, interesting choice. You could have made up any other icon, but you decided to use one that is similar to a real icon with a real issue, which focuses on um, racial justice, by the way, not some radicalized issue. And that's my main issue with this whole extreme center thing, because again, it's supposed to be an ironic kind of joke and a way to not demonize the left or the right. It's supposed to be this kind of politically neutral thing, like a both sides issue but it creates a false equivalency between the far left and the far right, which is obviously false. Black Lives Matter protesters in the streets fighting for racial equality, fighting against police brutality are not the same as fascists and white supremacists. There is no world in which you can make that equivalency. Oh, there's, there's extremists on both sides. Absolutely not. The social dilemma fails to name the real, very present threats such as Trump and the fact that he encourages white supremacists and violence against these left-wing protesters. And also something like QAnon, which used to be a kind of fringe group of conspiracy theories that has been becoming way more mainstream because of clever marketing tactics and of course the use of Facebook and Instagram for memes that get people to fall down that rabbit hole and suddenly they believe everything that QAnon portrays is true. And they have that conspiratorial thinking where they don't trust facts, you can't trust the government, you can't trust official websites, you have to do your own research, which ironically means go follow another Instagram truther page because they have the truth. Sure thing. Okay. Yes, as you can see, this is the part of the video that I'm most heated about and also probably the part of the video that is going to get this video demonetized. There's too many terms to mute. I shouldn't even try. Anyway, yes, in The Social Dilemma, there's this whole idea of the threat of political polarization. You know, now more than ever, we're more divided. People are more far left and Democrats are further left and Republicans are further right, which did you see the Democratic primaries? <laughs> the Democrats that are known as moderates would be on the right in many other Western countries, political axes but also our far left politician would be considered a moderate in another country, but okay. <laughs> yes, polarization, more divided than ever. Then there's the idea that everyone's in an echo chamber because we tend to follow people that we agree with, we unfriend people we disagree with, so our news feeds or whatever, 
end up being very homogenized. We only like to be surrounded by people who agree with us, which is a problem to an extent. You don't want to fall too deep into an echo chamber and forget what other people in the world believe. But also I don't blame you if it is very difficult or impossible for you to willingly befriend on Facebook people spouting racist bullshit or conspiracies or nonsense. If you need to like mute them, unfollow, whatever, do that. Though, should we be able to read news from a variety of sources with a critical eye to try to determine what is true, as true to the facts as it can be? Yes. Should we be a little bit skeptical of the mainstream media because of their corporate interests? Yes. But yeah, I don't know what I'm saying. Let's get into final thoughts. How could it be that I have more to say? Let's see. So the film ends somewhat optimistically, even though it like destroys you, like throughout the whole thing, it's very dark and very scary. And then all of a sudden it tries to switcheroo and be like, wait, but there's hope. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. We can fix this. We have to demand that these products be designed humanely, whatever that means. We didn't really get into that. How can we make the world better? We just need massive public pressure on governments, I guess because they're really good at controlling the tech giants like Facebook, Google, sure. They suggest that we turn off notifications, which honestly, yes, I agree with this. It's very important. Helps you get a little bit more of your attention back and not feel like you need to be sucked back into your phone with every little ping. So I do agree with that. Delete some apps. That's a fresh take. Before you share something, fact check it. Yes, I agree with that. Don't share something just based on the headline. Read the article. <laughs> I don't want to like talk down to you patronizingly or in a condescending way, but make sure we read what we share, even though the people that we share it to might not read it either. They suggest that we follow some people we disagree with to prevent that echo chamber. And then there's a guy named Jaron Lanier who has a book called 10 Arguments Why You Should Delete Social Media, which I actually have, and I will be reading it soon because it's required for one of my classes. Uh, so I can't speak to the book yet, but he's, an interesting figure. He, of course, suggests that we should maybe delete social media, but also you don't have to, he says. Other solutions include taxing data collection, the data assets that all of these companies hold, which could be a thing because taxing them might encourage them to not keep so much of our data, right? You'd hope so. The final statement in the film is, let's have a conversation about fixing it. Heck yeah, guys, all we have to do to fix social media and all these problems is have a conversation. Which, I mean, I mean, we're here. We're having this YouTube video. <laughs> I'm trying to discuss this. We're gonna talk about it in the comments. That's something. I do agree it's important to talk about. It's better for people to be aware of these issues than bury their heads in the sand. But also having conversations alone is not going to fix this, but okay. One of my last big questions is the whole idea of this film. Should we listen to, should we rely on these former tech insiders who have changed sides to fix the problems that they created. They admit, oh, I was an integral part of Google, Facebook, YouTube. I created these things, which I've now realized can do some damage and I wanna help stop it. The main guy, Tristan, is from the Center for Humane Technology. And I'm just wondering, like, does humane ethical technology exist? Can it exist? What would that look like? Again, I would have loved to hear a little bit more about that. Maybe there will be a part two to this whole documentary. <laughs> and generally they suggest a lot of technocratic solutions. So basically we just have to create better tech. We have to create good tech, humane tech to, to fix the bad tech. 
because technology will always be the answer. Or perhaps should we re-examine the role of technology in our lives and in our society? Should we maybe decide, huh, we might be better off with less tech than more? I don't know, just asking. Then of course the suggestions of regulation. We, we need to regulate Google, Facebook, all the tech giants and just tell them stop being bad, stop that. Which I agree, of course regulations are helpful, but it just takes years and years and years to get anything done. And again, these tech giants are so powerful and have such major interests that they are difficult to go up against. They're like the banks, they're like too big to fail. You know, we have Mark Zuckerberg in congressional hearings and our Congress people don't even know how Facebook works or how, how Facebook makes money, remember that? From ads. <laughs> how about instead of just asking for some regulations, how do we take control away? How do we reimagine social media? Is it possible for us to break up these tech giants because they're too big to exist in our society and they hold too much power and they're making way too much money, especially in a pandemic when so many people are unemployed and in poverty. I think Mark Zuckerberg like doubled his net worth during the pandemic. Billionaires should not exist, pass it on. I feel like this whole video is just me saying the most trite, overused, like anti-capitalist sentiments, which again is ironic because I'm a YouTuber and it's sponsored, blah. So I know I'm not saying anything brand new, I'm not saying anything groundbreaking, but you wanted me to discuss this. Actually, some of you did. I got a lot of messages when this documentary came out that you wanted me to talk about it, so I hope you've enjoyed it. Last thing I wanna say, I promise, last thing, is just that I got the general sense that a lot of this film suggests individual solutions. There's always an emphasis and a stress on what the individual should do rather than what the institutions should be forced to do. Because it's almost like, you know, putting the onus on individuals to stop the climate crisis through our individual actions. Oh, just turn off the faucet, ride a bike, buy sustainable clothing, that'll solve it. When we know that the vast majority of fossil fuel emissions came from, you know, the top 100 companies in the world. In that same way, trying to just tell individuals, it's your responsibility to be better about social media. It's your responsibility to buy and use this very addictive, powerful technology, but then find the willpower to reject it. Use it because we still want you to buy it, but just learn how to better manage your time or lessen your screen time. Give yourself breaks. I don't blame people for not being able to get away from social media. I know that many of us know how problematic this is, how harmful it is to our mental health, our physical health, our eyesight, but it's hard because again, it was created to be incredibly addictive and now social media and the internet and all of this tech are in every single part of our lives, it is hard to get away from it, okay? So I still think it is beneficial, of course, for us to try to be more aware and try to be better because I know that I feel my worst when I sit on my phone for 14 hours of the day. It's not gonna allow me to get any of the work done that I need to do. It's not going to encourage me to be motivated or inspired in any way. I'm just gonna feel worse. So it is important to do, but again, the stress should not be on individuals to solve these problems. We can't stop the misinformation campaigns, the fake news, the conspiracies, if just some people just like get off social media, there's still gonna be 
millions and billions of people on Facebook sharing the shit. Though, should you delete Facebook? Yeah, I think, I think Facebook is definitely the worst. I finally deleted my Facebook after watching this actually, and I feel a little bit lighter, you know? Should I maybe spend less time on Twitter for my own sake? Yes. Okay, that's it. That's it after I talk for like, an hour and a half. I hope you guys enjoyed this. If you watched it all the way to the end, thank you and congratulations because this was a lot. Again, I'm sorry for my slow upload schedule, but until I graduate in mid-December, I'm gonna be busy. So hope you stick around once I graduate, it's gonna be great. And hopefully I can start posting here a lot more frequently. But also again, please check out my podcast channel and my second channel for personal casual videos. And also my podcast is on YouTube, but also on any podcast platform. So you can listen to it, you can watch it, whatever. And once again, thank you to today's sponsor, Bright Cellars. I'm definitely gonna be drinking a bottle of wine tonight. We're getting Chipotle. We're gonna sit down and watch Netflix as we always do. And that's the routine after a long week. Okay, thanks, bye.